You can open your Bible or navigate on your device to Matthew chapter 27, Gospel of Matthew chapter 27. We're looking at verses 11 through 26 this morning. The topic, Pontius Pilate is stunned when the Jews demand he release to them the notorious criminal Barabbas instead of Jesus. The title of our message, Notorious B-A-R. Let's have, I needed you first service. No one knew what I was talking about first service, but anyway, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for this precious time that you've given us. Our minds always going a million miles an hour. There's so much to do. It's the holidays. There's just a lot going on. And even now, it's hard to slow down, but we, we're here in this place, Lord, where you desire to, to meet with us. And though we're a group, though we're the church, you want to meet with us individually as well. And I believe, Lord, that your word is so powerful that you are able to speak to us directly from it this morning whether it's the word read or taught, but especially what you have to say just as we're waiting upon you. I pray, Lord, that we would know that we've been in your presence. If there's anybody here, Lord, that doesn't know you in a saving way, I pray that your Holy Spirit would show them the love of Jesus Christ and that they would understand what we're gonna talk about this morning and how precious it is and that you are the God who saves. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name and those who agreed said... Amen. I am Spartacus, one of the truly memorable moments in movie history. Not referencing the more recent TV series, which I have not seen, so if you're worried, uh, I'm not going there. I'm talking about the 1960 film starring Kirk Douglas as the Roman slave, the gladiator, who leads other gladiators in a rebellion against Rome. The rebellion fails, and in the end, the Romans say they will release their captives instead of crucifying them and kill only Spartacus if he will identify himself. As he is standing to surrender himself to save the others, two of his fellow slaves stand with him and shout, I am Spartacus. And then one by one, all the thousand or so captive slaves say the same, identifying with him as their leader. I hope I didn't spoil the movie for any of you, but it's from 1960. If, if you haven't seen Spartacus yet, it's too late. <laughs> There's also a hilarious viral video in which a customer at a local Starbucks orders a latte and gives Spartacus as his name. <laughs> when the barista calls out his name, by prearrangement, a troop of actors in the shop starts shouting out, I am Spartacus. <laughs> and they continue until a guy in a Roman costume comes in and says, no, I'm Spartacus takes the coffee and goes. I already got a bunch of texts, first service saying you guys would do that if I dressed up in a toga. That's not gonna happen, so. We haven't. <laughs> Where were you guys an hour ago? Man, I died, I was dead up here on first service. Man, we need to, wow, good crowd. Now, we haven't read our text yet, but most of you are already familiar with the historical figure Barabbas. He's the notorious insurrectionist and murderer condemned to be crucified who is instead released by Pontius Pilate. Knowing what you do about him, would anyone have stood up for him and said, I am Barabbas? Well, one did. It was Jesus. 
He didn't shout, I am Barabbas, but he certainly took his place that day. You might think it wasn't his decision, but it really was. He had come into the world for just that moment to take the place of Barabbas and die instead as his substitute. And not just for him, because we read in Hebrews 2.9, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Everyone? Well, that's what it says, making Barabbas an illustration to us of the whole human race. As we work through the verses, let's think about two things. Number one, you are Barabbas and deserve to die. Number two, you are Barabbas for whom Jesus died. First of all, let's take a look at our deserving to die in verses 11 through 19. Bible doctrine can be hard to get a handle on. For example, the Bible teaches what theologians call the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. What is that? Well, the scriptures teach that all men are sinners and that the penalty for our sin is death. Jesus Christ died in our place when he was crucified on the cross. We deserve to be the ones placed on that cross to die because we're the ones who are sinners and he was not. He took the punishment on himself in our place. He substituted himself for us and took what we rightly deserved. In fact, the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I've often explained it as a, an exchange because that's what it was. Jesus died in our place taking our sin and giving us instead his right standing with God so that when God sees us, he sees us in Jesus Christ. Now, as a result of all this, our sins are atoned for. Easy way of understanding that is to say that we are now at one with God again. Now, those few comments merely scratch the surface regarding the doctrine. But to cement the overall concept of substitution in our spiritual understanding, the Bible gives us the illustration of a substitute in the case of Barabbas. Jesus literally took his place on the cross. I say that Barabbas then represents the human race. I am Barabbas, you are Barabbas, the entire human race is Barabbas represented. Now verse 11, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him saying, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, it is as you say. Some Bibles say you say so. I mentioned last week that Jesus had a total of six trials, three of them before the Jews, three of them before Romans. Pilate, after a preliminary hearing of the case and upon learning that Jesus was from Galilee, as a friendly gesture, initially sent Jesus to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at the time. Herod, after encountering complete silence from Jesus, sent him back to Pilate to be judged. We don't get all of that here in Matthew, but that's the order of events. And so after Jesus had had three trials in front of the Jews, comes to Pilate, goes to Herod, comes back to Pilate. And so we're picking up the story at Jesus' third and final Roman trial. The Jews had told Pilate Jesus was guilty of three political offenses. Now remember, they had convicted him of blasphemy, but Rome didn't care about religious blasphemy. And so they uh, came to Rome with three political charges. One, that he was a revolutionary. Two, that he told people to not pay taxes. And three, that he claimed to be a king. 
Matthew concentrates on the kingship of Jesus because he was originally writing for a Jewish audience and Jesus had come offering them the kingdom of heaven on the earth. Jesus answers in the affirmative, he was and he is the king of the Jews. And so when they ask him, are you the king of the Jews? He says, you say so. He's not saying, hey, I don't want any part of this. He's admitting that he's the king of the Jews, but it's a way of answering that draws everyone into the answer. In other words, yeah, I'm the king of the Jews and and you just said so. And, And that's why I'm on trial. If I'm not the king of the Jews, what am I doing here? and you need to let me go. And so it involves, it's, it's kind of like Jesus asking Peter that time, who do you say that I am? And all of us have to deal with that question. Who is this man uh, who claimed to be God, Jesus Christ? And so Jesus answers the infirm, in the affirmative, he was and he is the king of the Jews. One thing to notice, however, in passing is that this didn't seem to trouble Pilate in the least. He understood that Jesus was not a political king, not in his first coming anyway, and therefore he posed no immediate threat to the Roman government. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. And then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word so that the governor marveled greatly. Jesus wasn't there to answer accusations. He didn't need to defend himself. He was on his way to the cross, innocent and sinless, to die for the sins of the world. You know, sometimes we need to have better situational awareness. Uh, He was being falsely accused, but what did that matter? Because he was on his mission to go to the cross. And that was something totally secondary that he didn't need to worry about. Sometimes we major in the minors. Uh, just have an awareness of where you are, who you are, what you're doing, and, and just think always the way Paul the Apostle did, how can I bring a testimony for Jesus Christ into this situation? Maybe I'm being falsely accused, maybe this is happening or that's happening. Why am I in this situation? Because I'm a Christian and the Lord wants to be represented. And so let me be aware of my situation and not answer it the way a carnal person would. And so Jesus uh, takes the high ground, we would say. Now, once the Jewish leaders officially rejected Jesus as their king, you know the promise of the kingdom was put on hold. He will still establish it, a real earthly 1,000-year kingdom of heaven on the earth, but it's gonna have to wait for a second coming. I keep hammering this for two reasons. One, it's, it's, it's what the Gospel of Matthew is about. But secondly, I've been reading a lot more the past couple of years um, some of the younger, more trendy Christian blogs and, and, and Christian guys, they're trying to get away from the traditional understanding of, of church, uh, of the prophecies of the church and the kingdom of heaven on earth. And they're starting to roll up the church and Israel together and not make a distinction. And they're saying things like there isn't gonna be any you know, crazy uh, destruction of the world and a recreation. We're just gonna kind of save the planet and, and get ready for Jesus and stuff. And it's, it's just all old theology being rolled out again. And so we expect, what we're telling you is that Jesus came and offered the Jews the kingdom They rejected him and it, it's on hold until he comes back in his second coming and then there will be a literal thousand year kingdom on this planet before eternity. Now Pilate marveled greatly. Remember Jesus had been beaten by the Jews before they brought him to Pilate. It was clear he was being falsely accused, yet he had no malice toward the Jews. He was not looking to be vindicated. He was still willing in fact to own up to being their king. 
I would have said something sarcastic like, well, I am the king of the Jews, but not these guys, not these knuckleheads. But Jesus said, no, yeah, you say it's true. I am the king of Jews like these. Uh, who would want subjects like them? But as soon as I say that, I realize who would want a follower like me or like you? I'm not saying that to put us down, it's just true. We are mostly less than stellar subjects of our Lord, yet he has promised to complete the work he has started in each of us, and he'll present us faultless and beautiful to our Father in heaven. Verse 15, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now, I'm guessing they usually released a less dangerous prisoner. From the various gospel accounts and statements in the book of Acts, we gather that Barabbas was an insurrectionist who had committed murder in a failed rebellion and was due to be executed. He was a terrorist with blood on his hands. He was likely not popular with the Jews. After all, Pilate hoped that the crowd would ask him to release Jesus, not Barabbas. So he obviously wouldn't bring out someone they liked or who he thought they had any chance of picking over Jesus. So sometimes he's portrayed as a uh, popular revolutionary figure, uh, but he was not. Otherwise, Pilate would not have chosen him. Pilate I don't, he, you know, he didn't do this himself. He whispered to one of his, his guards. He said, hey, I want you to find me the worst criminal that you can find. Uh, how about that guy, Barabbas? No one would want that guy released. And you might think, well, the Jews wanted to overthrow Rome. Well, that's true, but not all the Jews. And some of these insurrectionists, they didn't just kill Romans. They also killed Jews that were not sympathetic to their cause. Uh, and so not every rebellion was popular among the Jews. So Barabbas was notorious, murderous, enemy of the state, an enemy of Israel, uh, and the last guy you would want to see released uh, at, under any circumstances. Verse 17, therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, oh, who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Now, Pilate was no dummy. He was a shrewd, and history says, cruel governor. He was playing what he thought to be a masterful hand. Surely, they could not prefer Barabbas to Jesus. No rational person would make that choice. Pilate believed that he had made a move that ensured that he would be able to release Jesus and be safe from killing an innocent man. Man, was he in for a surprise. Verse 19, while he was still sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. In the modern day, he, she would have sent him a text. Said, hey, hang on, I gotta get that. Honey, don't have anything to do with that man or else dinner will be burned. Uh, you know, I mean, it's one thing to have political pressure from Tiberius Caesar, it's a whole nother thing to have your wife tell you something. I mean, that's powerful stuff. Pressure from the little misses. It all points to Jesus' absolute innocence from every angle. Should he go to the cross to be crucified, it would be the death of an innocent man, an absolutely innocent man, in the place of the worst guilty man. And that's just what was about to unfold. A couple of very interesting things about Barabbas. First of all, Barabbas doesn't really seem to be a name. It is literally... Bar, which means the son of, and Abbas, which means the father. And so the name means son of the father. It's ambiguous. 
All it's telling you is that this guy was the son of some father. Now the local Jews and the Romans knew who he was. Apparently this was a moniker or a nickname uh, that he went by. But he has this totally generic name. He's John Doe, that's what we would say today. He represents every man. You say, wait a minute, every man isn't a murderer. Well, we kind of are. For one thing, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus established that if we are even angry in our heart, it's as sinful as murder. We are all angry in our hearts because we find we have residing in us a sin nature. It's inherited from our original parents, Adam and Eve. Any one of you who would say to me, I've never been angry, well, now you're a lying angry person. (laughs) Or you've never driven in LA, one of the two. For another thing, until we are Christians, we are in the devil's kingdom. He's the ruler of this earth, and he is called a murderer from the beginning in the Gospel of John. Even if we do no actual murder, we are the enemies of God in our natural state, and so we are God's enemies who are murderers, and so we are in every way exactly like Barabbas. Now here's something enormously interesting Also, it's a little unusual. You may not have heard this before, so I'm gonna quote some theological sources so that you know I'm not making this up. So here it goes. Barabbas was also known as Jesus Barabbas according to the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible based on a Greek textual variant of Matthew found in a few manuscripts. The verse reads, at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the Messiah? Another source says, many textual scholars believe the double name Jesus Barabbas was the original reading. They suggest that Jesus was omitted from several Greek manuscripts of Matthew out of reverence. The church father Origen around the third century said, in the whole range of scriptures, we know that no one who is a sinner is called Jesus. And so they think some of the translators dropped the, uh, the name, which was a common name in the first century, out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Now, whether or not Barabbas was Jesus Barabbas, it's clear that the intention of this story is to show you that Jesus, the Son of God, took the place of Jesus Barabbas, who represents every man that was ever conceived. He is, in fact, our substitute. He takes my place, he takes your place, takes everyone's place. Now, I already quoted the verse in Hebrews that says, Jesus tasted death for every man. I'm fond of quoting John 12, 32, where Jesus promised, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. The lifting up he was talking about was his death on the cross. What I'm saying is that his substitutionary atonement was sufficient for all men. It was for everyone. It is therefore unlimited in its scope. 1 John 2, 2 says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And the following verses continue, for there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We're told elsewhere 
the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, that God is the Savior of all people, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that he died for the ungodly, that he died for all, and that he was in Christ, that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. Are all men therefore saved in this substitutionary atonement? No, of course not, because we also read in 1 Timothy 4.10, he is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. One doctrinal statement I read puts it like this, out of love, God sacrificed his only son for the world so that those from the world who trust in Jesus and his atoning sacrifice will benefit from that atoning sacrifice and be saved while those from the world who reject that atoning sacrifice in unbelief will not benefit from it, but remain condemned and perish. His atoning death on the cross is sufficient to save all who will believe in him. Now, I believe this unlimited atonement is illustrated for us a little later at his crucifixion involving uh, the two thieves. You remember that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. It's probable that these guys were colleagues of Barabbas and that all three of them were going to be crucified together that day. Commentators point out too that the word for thieves can mean or be used of insurrectionists. And since Rome did not crucify thieves, it was not a capital crime, these guys were most likely murderers and insurrectionists with Barabbas. Jesus was substituted for Barabbas because he was lifted up on the cross. He said he would draw all men to himself. So what happened during those hours he was on the cross? One of the thieves believed and was saved. The other did not believe and remained lost and damned. The question you would ask, could the second thief have been saved? I think any rational person would look at the scene on the cross and realize that both of those men could have been saved that day. And so what I'm saying is that he was not saved because he did not believe, while the other one was saved because he did believe. And so Jesus lifted up, draws all men to himself. Some believe, some do not believe, but his substitution is sufficient for all. It's only effective in those who actually believe. Now, the fact that we are sinners means we deserve to die. We deserve the eternal punishment of the lake of fire. But Jesus was delivered up for our offenses. He was crucified for our sins. He was Barabbas' substitute. He was everyone's substitute. And that leads us into the remaining verses where we see that you are Barabbas for whom Jesus died. Donald Gray Barnhouse said this, he said, Barabbas was the only man in the world who could say Jesus Christ took his physical place, but all who are Christians can say that Jesus Christ took their spiritual place. Verse 20, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor asked, uh, answered rather and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. I think he was just getting ready to let Jesus go. He probably couldn't believe his ears. All you can say about this is Zugzwang. Any chess players? 
I found it's a great word. It's a German word for a situation found in chess and other games where one player is put at a disadvantage because he must make a move that he would prefer to pass on and not make. The fact that the player is compelled to move means that his position will become significantly weaker. A player is said to be in zugzwang when any possible move will worsen his position. This is like having an argument with your husband. Any possible move puts him in jeopardy. Uh, no, I'm just making that up. That's your assignment today. Use the word zugzwang in a sentence that doesn't involve chess. Verse 22, Pilate said to them, what should I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said to him, let him be crucified. He never in the proverbial million years expected the crowd to ask for Barabbas. The governor was losing it. He was a fool to ask the crowd a question. It showed weakness and kept him backpedaling. Then the governor said, what evil has he done? They cried out all the more saying, let him be crucified. Not that we need it, but this is more testimony to the absolute innocence of Jesus Christ. Verse 24, when Pilate saw he could not prevail at all, but that rather a tumult was arising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. You might recognize those last words, you see to it. That's what the religious leaders told Judas when he came seeking forgiveness. They said, hey, this is nothing to us, you see to it. Now Pilate is throwing those words back at them, probably not knowing it, this is God's way of trying to prick their conscience. Even though these guys are turning Jesus over to be crucified, God's still trying to prick their conscience, maybe to reach them down the road after the Lord has risen from the dead. What a gracious God we serve. Now, this hand-washing is not a Roman custom. It's likely that Pilate was trying to mock the Jews. They practiced all kinds of ritual hand-washing. Not washing up before dinner, which you can never get your kids to do, uh, you know. But they would have ritual washings where they'd have to hold their hands a certain way and water would have to drip a certain way and if one hand touched the other hand, they'd have to start all over again. It was a way of, of saying they were being holy and set apart in order to do a certain task. And so Pilate, you have to understand, he has totally lost face with the Jews. He's losing his composure. The crowd has overwhelmed him. He's afraid that Rome is gonna get involved. He can't afford a rebellion, but he still wants to kind of rub it in a little bit and save some, some Roman dignity. And so he washes his hands in a way that the Jews would. And essentially he's saying, you guys per, you know, perform all these rituals and these hand washings, but you are a bunch of evil, heinous individuals sending an evil man or an innocent man to an evil man's death. In fact, Pilate was committing a heinous evil as well knowingly condemning a man he had declared to be innocent simply because he wanted to ensure his political future. Uh, how, do you, how does Pilate get a pass because he washes his hand? Well, I'm, ah, this has, I have nothing to do with this. You have everything to do with this. They can't crucify him without you. And so you can't pass the buck like that. Now here's an amazing fact, something I didn't know in the entire ocean of things I don't know, but I didn't know this. The Greek Orthodox and Coptic faiths canonized Pilate and his wife as saints. June 25th is St. Pontius Pilate Day. Maybe you should get your union on that. Where's Gene? He's home. It's a holiday. What? Yeah, it's Pontius Pilate Day. 
There's a tradition totally unsubstantiated that he and Mrs. Pilate were converted at the tomb of Jesus and that they became closet Christians. It's, you know, since there's no evidence for it, they're closet Christians, I guess. I'd like to think they got saved, but it's just silly to speculate. He bears responsibility for sending Jesus to his death. He was just as culpable as the Jews. In fact, venerating him only fuels anti-Semitism as if the Jews alone killed Christ. In my opinion, canonizing Pilate is a move to shift the blame and guilt totally on the Jews to justify all manner of cruelty and anti-Semitism against the Jews who for their history have been called Christ killers. Verse 25, and all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. Thanks a lot, mom and dad. Just keep us out of this, would you? They had no idea how true that would be, how literally true. In just a few decades in 70 AD, Titus and the Roman legions would siege, then destroy Jerusalem. The people and their children would bleed and die horribly. Josephus, the first century historian, claims over a million people were killed during that siege of which a majority were Jewish, and that another 97,000 were captured and enslaved. Here's a quote from Josephus. He says, the slaughter within was even more dreadful than the spectacle from without. Men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests, whose, uh, those who fought and those who entreated mercy were hewn down in indiscriminate carnage. The number of the slain exceeded that of the slayers. The legionaries had to climb over heaps of dead people to carry on the work of extermination. To say nothing of the centuries of dispersion of the Jews throughout the world, mostly as the recipients of terrible persecution uh, leading up to the Holocaust in the 20th century. Verse 26, then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The Romans scourged by stripping down the prisoner and tying him to a post. He would be brutally whipped with an instrument that had pieces of lead and sharp bone embedded in the leather. Unlike the more merciful Jewish beating, which only allowed a maximum of 40 lashes and only really went up to 39 because they didn't want to make a mistake, the Roman scourging could go on indefinitely. It was more a tool to invoke a confession. And so if they had a criminal or someone that they thought was guilty and he wouldn't confess, they would scourge him until he cried out that he was guilty. And oftentimes, as you've heard many times, people would die just from the whipping because it was so painful and horrifying. Uh, and so, uh, now in the case of Jesus, he couldn't confess and wouldn't confess, and, he, and Pilate knew that uh, because he had already declared him several times innocent. Uh, uh, he was hoping that it would garner sympathy once the Jews saw that he was a beaten, broken man, but it did not. Donald Gray Barnhouse, to quote him again, he speculated about Barabbas, and some of this, it's just speculation, but it, it's a good story. Here's what he wrote. Picture Barabbas sitting in the prison, staring at his hands, which were soon to be pierced by nails, and shuddering at any sound of hammering that might remind him with horror of his own impending crucifixion. Suddenly, he hears a crowd roaring outside the prison. There are angry voices, crucify him! He thinks he hears his own name. Then a jailer comes to unlock the door of his cell. Barabbas thinks that the time for his execution has come, but instead the jailer tells him that he's being set free. The crowd has called for his release. Jesus of Nazareth is to die instead. Stunned, Barabbas joins the processional that is making its way to Calvary and watches as Jesus is crucified. 
He hears the sound of the hammer and knows that the blows are fastening Jesus to the rough wooden cross that they were meant for him. He sees the cross lifted high into place and he knows that he is the one who should be dying on it. Jesus cries, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The centurion who has commanded the execution party exclaims, surely this man was the son of God. Barabbas must have been saying, that man took my place. I am the one who should have died. I am the condemned murderer. That man did nothing wrong. He is dying for me. Now, obviously, some of that is speculation, but uh, it makes sense to us. Barabbas and Jesus changed places. The murderer's bonds, his curse, his disgrace, and his mortal agony were transferred to the righteous, sinless Son of God, while the liberty, innocence, safety, and well-being of the Son of God became the portion of the murderer. I am Barabbas. You are Barabbas. Everyone is Barabbas. I don't know when or how you got saved. You probably didn't literally think of Barabbas uh, and Jesus on the cross between the two thieves, but it fits most conversion stories because there's a moment when you look up and you understand that Jesus died on the cross where you deserve to die and spend eternity in hell that he actually did take your place and that's the only way you're going to be saved because there are no works of righteousness that you can do that could ever get you into the presence of God. Seeing him nailed there, which murderer are you? Are you the one who by believing is with him in heaven for eternity or are you the one who will die in your sins and perish in the lake of fire? It's a choice Everyone is enabled to make as the grace of God works upon your heart to free your will to believe in Jesus Christ. It's a scene that plays itself out all the time over and over again. Jesus on the cross lifted up, drawing men to himself. The grace of God opening hearts, drawing men to that moment of decision. If you're not a believer, the Holy Spirit is here to convict you of sin and of your need for God to give you his righteousness because you can't earn your own in order that you would avoid the judgment that is coming. For the majority of us who are saved, it's always appropriate to remember what we read in Colossians 1, 21 and 22. We who were once alienated and enemies by wicked works, yet now God has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present us holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Let's pray.